Hey there, everyone. This week's episode is a conversation between myself and my friend David Blanton, who studied at Duke Divinity School and knows a thing or two about place, architecture, the environment, theology, and probably a lot of other things. But we focus mostly on the environment for this discussion. We wanted to know a little bit more about how can we think about different Christian perspectives on the environment, ecology, and our relationship to the land. I hope you enjoy our discussion and maybe learn a new perspective or two. Okay, so David, do you want to introduce yourself for the pod? Sure, yeah. Um, my name is David Blanton. Uh, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. And yeah, I work at a design build firm. So I think a lot about built environment and place making. Um, and I studied theology a bit uh, in grad school. And I thought mostly about doctrines of creation and environmental uh, thought and theology. So, Awesome. I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on, because this is an interesting topic, because I didn't hear anything about this really as a kid. Uh, there are a lot of approaches coming from different perspectives now about how do we take care of the environment? How do we think about our ethical choices? How do we work as consumers? How do we think about our families? And these all come from different perspectives where people can be both really positive, some can be really negative. Um, and with all of that, I want to make sure that we're sort of looking at resources um, for people in like the Christian tradition there are tons of both, you know, ancient sources and activists today that we can look towards that I think people are ignoring. So, but I want, I want to start first from your perspective. Um, so how has your thoughts on sort of Christianity and Christians and environmentalism changed over the years, perhaps going from when you first started thinking about it, going through grad school to now working with a design build firm yeah that's a great question yeah i think a lot of people grow up with this kind of like super sort of have a pretty negative experience overall or sort of like i feel like a lot of people have a lot of unlearning to do and so it's hard to know where to start because i think for a lot of folks the church just hasn't equipped them to do that and certainly a lot of forces in like culture and society haven't equipped folks to do, to think critically mm -hmm. about their place in relation to what Christians would call creation. So, but I have a slightly different narrative in the sense that I didn't feel like I had a ton of stuff that I had to unlearn growing up or from my, my upbringing. Um, sorry, baby is awake now. Mm -hmm. um, she is, she is also with me contributing to the pod. Uh, <laughs> but um, so I didn't have a ton of stuff that I needed to unlearn necessarily. I actually like had a really great and kind of fun experience growing up with as it pertains to like how I understood land and how I understood creation. I grew up kind of like around farming and agricultural practices. And so like, you know, we had a garden growing up and that was really formative for me. Like summer spent, you know, weeding and just like little things that introduced me very young to like getting a sense that food doesn't come from the grocery store and getting a sense that like I need 
to have I need to like have a relationship with the land that isn't primarily that of a consumer you know what I mean like those kinds of like basic intuitions that come really naturally when you spend time Mm -hmm. farming and working the land and then in high school I started spending some parts of my summer at my aunt's farm taking care of helping take care of her cattle and chickens and working in her garden and taking care of some of her horses and so and that continued in college a little bit and um, so I, I think all of those experiences left a pretty big imprint on me. Um, and I think for sure gave me a sort of like agrarian sympathy. Um, mm-hmm. and so anyway, so I, I probably didn't have quite the same sort of journey that I think a lot of folks did, which is growing up just in the Christian church. And, and I definitely didn't learn these kinds of things from the church, like the language of like dominion as heard as sort of this, uh, you know, need to control and subdue and dominate the world um, was what I was hearing in the pews, like growing up, our church mm-hmm. actually like destroyed this fairly large family farm of like, you know, like 15 or 20 acres to build this huge complex with tons of parking and all this kind of stuff. And so that was just, that was just what you did. And um So there was definitely some cognitive disconnect between like my church experience and my Mm -hmm. experience growing up. But I feel like I I maybe had a little bit less to unlearn just because of, you know, being being fortunate enough to have family that that was doing some some farming. So okay, and then sort of as you went through when you went through studying theology in grad school, how did that sort of with your agrarian sympathies and everything coming in, how did that sort of grow and sort of expand a bit? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I didn't know going into school that the Christian tradition actually had really profound resources for doing that work and that those resources mm-hmm. were not fringy in the Christian tradition, but like mm-hmm. really central to the logic of Christianity. So, um, cause I, in, in undergrad, like I, I was exposed to some of this stuff where, um, I had a professor that was really into hiking and liminality and like religious experiences and placemaking. And so I was sort of like alerted to some of those possibilities, but it was always kind of in like, I became really inspired by, and maybe like, um, yeah, I guess I would say that I mostly I was sort of amazed in a way at the while there is such there has been such a profound um, departure from what in my mind is a deep um theological biblical concern with land and creation and the kinds of questions that we're especially faced with and what people describe as the Anthropocene is this the sort of age where humans exert just a profound and maybe even the most kind of uh significant force on planetary sort of activity um on earth Mm -hmm. but so so despite the fact that Christians are largely responsible for a lot of the kind of negative sort of thinking that we identify with as, you know, this, this sort of uh, 
sort of anti-environmental concern that you see a lot of people having um, are, are this sort of willful ignorance in this sense that we should just keep using the earth however we see fit as a bottomless resource. So despite the fact that Christians are largely responsible for that kind of thinking, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thinking is itself a tremendous departure from biblical witness. And while I think I hoped that that was the case maybe growing up, even though I never really saw that and certainly didn't see that preached or hear that walked out in meaningful ways in a sort of church context. I think that being um, in grad school and having time to study some Old Testament, but also just studying um, theology, I think gave me a lot of hope that the Christian tradition actually has a tremendous amount to offer. Um mm-hmm this sort of time that we're in and um, has immense resources and um, has immense resources, not just for reflection, but for even ways of thinking about and framing action. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway. And then, and then I think it inspired because I felt so grounded in that witness. I think I Mm -hmm. felt inspired to try stuff and think about how this looks on the ground in really practical ways. So not just like, I didn't because there were people that had that had laid the foundation sort of framework for me to be like oh like to, to be able to see that this was legitimate I think I felt comfortable trying stuff and I felt comfortable exploring possibilities not only for a sort of theory of how we would think about creation but also how we would reimagine our relationship to creation and reenact that kind of relationship if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, who who were the people that you were listening to or reading or just seeing sort of live out this idea about Christians and a new relationship with the land that helped you along the way? Um, so I was really fortunate to be around a couple of people that I think of as sort of um, leaders kind of in this space. So most of my thoughts are more or less sort of... Uh, refracted and poorly refracted echoes of things that they've said far more eloquently and and better. And they've been doing the work a lot longer. Um, But probably the person that influenced me the most was uh, my advisor, Norman Wurzba. He has done a lot. So he's actually, he's grew up in farming and stuff like that. And um, in Canada, and then he moved here started reading philosophy and theology in the States and then befriended Wendell Berry and like put all of those things together. Um, And so I think (laughs) his sort of interdisciplinary approach was really influential on me. And he, he has really serious readings of uh, a number of sort of seemingly unrelated kind of sources that he, I think draws together really nicely in his work that, inspired me to think along those lines and along in, in those terms. And then the other person that has had a sort of lasting impact on biblical studies, especially at Duke, um, mm-hmm. is Ellen Davis. Uh, she has written and lectured a decent amount um, while I was there on um, Old Testament, especially I was especially blown away by some of the minor prophets and their concern, um, Amos in particular, uh, although it's present in, in a lot of minor prophets, the, the, this concern with um, 
this concern with the land, but in particular, I, I think in Amos, you see this concern with um, uh, the way that the wealthy, um, sort of this sort of wealthy ruling class sort of uh, subdues um, the, the agrarian class. And so Amos rails against this sort of like, um, extractive kind of political technology that um, that just sort of grinds the people that are working the land into the dust. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so I was, I was, I think, yeah, I think those two sources are probably the most influential on my thinking in this regard. Okay. Um, so now that you've had that experience, how do you then take all of that and bring it into the work that you do now working with the design and build firm? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I don't want to sort of uh, give delusions of grandeur about how (laughs) every time I look at a floor plan or every time I, well, it's probably true every time I look at a floor plan, but every time I'm, (laughs) you know, picking out a light fixture or um, ordering a window package. I'm not thinking about how is this going to cultivate an agrarian sympathy or, you know, whatever you, or, you know, how is this going to help people live out, you know, what I think about when I think about a doctrine of creation. But I think that built environments specifically um, are sort of latent with this capacity to uh, habituate us and inspire us into new ways of being in the world like you mm-hmm. you can think you can see this in really simple ways so um having a two-car garage and tons of private living space in a house teaches me and teaches its inhabitants one that the home is primarily for withdrawing from the world and for preserving privacy from the world, which is to say from my neighbor and from creation. And then it's also, it's uh, having a house is ultimately about the accumulation of stuff. Um, and you see a lot of homes in, in places like Austin, Texas, where, uh, um, the really the only street entrance into a house is through a garage, um, mm-hmm. which completely eliminates the possibility that there would be neighborly contact at all, much less that you would, you know, be able to walk in your backyard and see something besides a privacy fence. So, um, so I think those are kind of really obvious examples, but, uh, I think I've been able to, to, to work some with, with architects, um, have had the sort of privilege of being able to befriend a few that are thinking pretty actively along these lines, um, and in particular, I think I'm mostly concerned with how do buildings um, and how does the built environment introduce us to our place, um, by which I, I both want to invoke our neighbors and uh, creation. Um, not that those are separate, but um, so, I mean, a, a couple of sort of simple things, like besides my sort of diatribe against garages and <laughs> huge private living spaces. Um, a couple simple kind of examples would be to think about how window placement works. So um, having natural light is a really, and having it placed in 
almost sort of playful ways are, are having it placed in, you know, there's a, there's a lot that you can do with the placement of a window. You know, there's a practice and some folks that try to cultivate this sort of like Zen kind <laughs> of discipline where they'll have, you know, they'll have the house will be set along this really beautiful Vista, but they'll have this tiny little like 12 inch by 12 inch window. And you only see it as you're going down the stairs. But if you look like right as you're going by, you just like, it just captures this view. That's, really beautiful just like all the other views but it but it disciplines your view in a way that if you just had all these panels of glass like it, it would you wouldn't be called to focus in the same mm -hmm. way um and so that, that's one example obviously like there are little things you can do like um i think it's important to have kitchens not just be these sort of immaculate spaces that like you feel like you're infringing upon if you were to have food out or, but, mm -hmm. but they're actually practical workspaces for you to prepare food and to do that together. So, you know, I think it's important to have sinks either face a window or, or be in like a sort of Island space or sort of oriented towards the room. So that way, something as simple as preparing a meal doesn't force you to isolate yourself from what's happening elsewhere. But like, if you're sitting, if you're sitting and you're in the sink or if you're, cutting vegetables or whatever you're doing you either have a window that you're looking out in and obviously that you know if you have something like a garden that can kind of obviously sort of alert you to um the source of where your food's coming from but mm -hmm. also if your kids are playing outside if chatter you know people are over like it allows you to um be involved in what's going on and it, and it invites other people into the process of doing that cooking or whatever it is so those are just a couple of simple things. One thing that we started doing in our houses is including what we call sort of essential space, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of a joke about um, the fact, not, it's not a joke, but it's sort of a tribute to the fact that everybody's having to work at home. Um, mm -hmm. And so everybody needs a sort of like space where you can uh, actually get work done or have your kids do school or whatever like that. So um, I think people are learning to see, um, the home as I'm, I'm hoping that people are hoping starting to see the home as not just a sort of like entertainment kind of isolation space, but a place where work happens. And so mm -hmm. uh, designing a beautiful place for that to happen has become something that's important to us in the age of COVID. Well, that's great. I mean, I think a lot of what I see is that you're really focusing on both being intentional, but also cultivating this, idea that we share in the space together and that it's not ours to just take a hunk out of which yeah. i think goes uh sort of against the grain of this dominion narrative that we usually see people bring out when they're whenever someone's talking about the environment and the bible people always want to go to uh having dominion over the land as it is in genesis but mm -hmm. how can we sort of rethink even that are we are there some sort of cultural thing cultural reading lenses that we're bringing to having dominion that maybe we should rethink when it comes to how do we uh how do we steward and take care of the earth so i i think um so so in the, this dominion language that i think is handily available to a lot of Christians that want to deny that we should have any kind of concern for the environment. Um, 
I think is, is really troubling. And I think the way that that reading is deployed is misleading in a lot of ways and a lot of important ways. So I think that, so, so one, you have to own the fact that I think as far as I can tell that language does seem to be there, but the way that that sort of understanding of what is meant by that particular passage which also has to be taken in context of all, all the other things that are happening. One, not only in the book of Genesis, where you have an example of the land actually having agency and bearing witness against human wrongdoing in the story of Cain and Abel. Um, and so the idea that the land is just something that is sort of uh, valueless until we impose value on it is something that you don't get from the Bible. And the Bible won't, I don't think, I don't think Genesis 1 will let you do that. Because um, I think in Genesis 1 and 2, you get this really beautiful poetic account of how, not of how the world came to be, but the kind of world in which we are. So you don't, in Genesis, I don't, yeah, so that's sort of my shtick on that. But in terms of that language of dominion, that language of dominion is working you know, and this is my sort of juvenile reading of the text. I'm by no means a biblical scholar or anything like that, but I'll give you my two cents on it. So in Genesis, you're getting this sort of cosmic account of the kind and the character of the world. And as it pertains to the fact that it's being created and it's done in a way which the, 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 the text is quite different from other kinds of accounts that you might get of the way the world came to be. But what's important and for the conversation on dominion at least is that it's this cosmic account of the world's meaning, its significance and the fact that it is exists in gratuity, which is to say that it didn't have to be and God chose to, um, in choosing to make it, God declares it good. Um, and so this language of dominion is wrapped up in that context and so the word is actually the word dominion is actually related to a word in hebrew for rent to, to rendering something available to sacrifice so to me um that that word dominion works in a way where it's humans are being called to work in creation and work with creation in such a way that the kind of world that comes to be in which where where humans are in contact with it is something that would be pleasing to the lord and um that would continue to elicit the sort of goodness reaction from the lord um if that makes sense. So, so I, th I think, I think that is, that's kind of my reading of that passage, but I also just don't, I, I also think that this sense, especially this sense, you can do what you will with, you know, whether or not that Hebrew holds up, but I, I absolutely think that this sense that the world is sort of out there for our taking and it doesn't have meaning until it's incorporated into our project, I think is extremely modern and mm -hmm. is, as I, I just don't think the Bible will let you do that. Okay, cool. But the other thing I'm interested in is because you talked a little bit about the minor prophets too, is what are some other places where we can see uh, the Bible talking about land and about our sort of shared communal space that maybe we didn't think of before? 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do think you get that in the minor prophets. I think Amos is a, is a cool example. Um, you, in a way you get that throughout. I mean, I think that, uh, the Torah Genesis especially is fundamentally about God's people in relation to land. Like mm-hmm. it's about land and progeny. Um, and I think as you, when you study closely, I, I got a chance to take a whole course on Genesis. I'm a little bit partial to, to that, but, um, uh, you see just time and time again, these instances where the land is crucial to what's happening. And you even see instances where the land has agency, um, which is to me very surprising, but there's been, there's been quite a, quite a number of works, uh, especially recently, um, that I could point you to that describe um, books, like the book of Isaiah in particular. Um, the professor of mine who was teaching the course on Genesis wrote a book on uh, basically the book of Isaiah as a sort of agrarian text. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, there, there's plenty of examples in there. I'm, I'm also, uh, I think people often think about the New Testament as being a place where that's primarily spiritual. Um, so you sort of get rid of this sort of legalistic thing and you sort of do off with these sort of material requirements. And it's really all about, uh, I think Protestants are especially prone to this temptation. Um, the sense that Jesus is fundamentally and exclusively just concerned with our hearts and getting our souls out of planet earth and up to heaven. Mm -hmm. And what I think you see in the book of revelation, for instance, is, God directly sort of going against that sensibility because, and, and this is God's concern in Jesus Christ too, that we think that what we need to do to be saved is to get away from creation. And God is constantly coming into creation and breaking into creation. I mean, it, you know, quite dramatically in Jesus Christ, the one who created the world comes back into the world to save the world. Um, mm-hmm. But in Revelation, you get God returning to the world um, and making God's home in the world. So mm-hmm. that's just a very different picture from this treasure trove of resources for us to extract because this whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. So let's get the hell yeah. out of here. Um, and I And I think... I, I don't think, yeah, I just think you can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that, I guess those are just a couple of places where you could, you could sort of start. And then, and then I, to get back to the sense of shared community and, and everything, I think one thing that, that is, is always a, a passage that's always been inspiring and challenging and interesting to me is this early, very early church community in Acts um, mm-hmm. uh, is extremely communal uh, everything that people had, which wasn't just um, money, because most people didn't have very much, but was resources that were drawn um, from their land is mm-hmm. are being shared. So food, uh, and that there's actually a couple that lies and withholds things from the group and is killed and i don't know how to think about that but uh but but that's sort of this other place i think where you get this strong emphasis on to be the people of god means to dwell together on material terms and to acknowledge that 
the things that we own, um, we own in common. So we mm. get our sense of what is ours. And that is in some ways mediated through the community, um, which like, you know, you could say all kinds of things about that in the way that that relates to, I think that to, to me, this, this grammar of dominion relates very closely to sort of materialism and uh, consumerism and, and this sort of individualism. And I think that mm -hmm. acts as a great job at, at sort of cutting against that grain a little bit. Cool. I think as uh, a final note, I want to kind of look at this climate anxiety or this dread that is a big thing people are looking at now. Um, but you talked a little bit about how we can counter the narrative of Christianity just being, let's get out of this uh, crappy dying planet and just head on over to heaven. But actually that God is getting inside of creation and messing about with it. Yeah. So how can we, how can we speak to this anxiety in a way that doesn't suck in a way that kind of meets people where they're at with this kind of this concern and this real sort of dread about what's happening? Yeah, I think. Um, so maybe I'll start. I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's, there's a lot of reactions people have in this moment to the climate one of them I, I, like you said a lot of people are a lot of people that are doing advocacy and sort of like direct action kind of work I think a lot of them a lot of the accounts that I'm reading and seeing you just see a ton of people that are extremely burnt out and because of the mm -hmm. <laughs> like just resistance to change and the difficulty to um, sort of amass change on a scale that's needed, it can be extremely disheartening. And you have a ton of folks, I think, that are doing everything that they can see to do and just running into walls and feeling extremely disheartened, which is a completely understandable mm -hmm. way to feel in light of the challenges that we face. Um, and I think I'm really interested. So th there's this bizarre kind of technocratic solution, which is curious and to me really off the mark um, for two reasons. One, because in my mind, and, and I, th I don't think that you can... Um, I don't think that we can sort of invent our way to a problem, especially when you have knuckleheads like Elon Musk out there, like thinking that the solution is basically to get to Mars. Like that, that just sounds eerily similar to me, mm -hmm. like to the sort of dominion kind of narrative or whatever. But so, but, but those are, those are extremely elitist solutions. Um, and mm -hmm. I just think that, well, one, I, I think that obviously climate change disproportionately affects um, poor people and people of color. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, and so I, what, that's, I guess that's sort of an aside from the question that you're asking about how do we have hope in these times? But I, I guess I would say one that maybe 
this sort of technocratic innovation isn't something that's giving me hope um, because I think it's continuing yeah. to see it, it, it's, it's not resolving the problem that we have a completely skewed vision of what creation is and it's an elitist solution mm-hmm. as far as I can see. Yeah. Um, so there's that in terms of how do we have hope in these troubled times? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I will say two things, mm-hmm. I guess that um, I hope give a sort of grain of hope or encouragement. One would be that hope is as I think we think about hope and love and faith as primarily in personal dispositions, sort of felt experiences, which I think sometimes they are, but I think they're as much a virtue as they are that, which is to say that hope requires work to arrive at and it takes cultivation Mm -hmm. over time. And I think one of the ways that we cultivate hope is by recalling that we are not alone. And Mm -hmm. so we're not alone in doing the work, but in a more fundamental way in the world, in creation, we are not alone. Um, uh, The professor of mine that I mentioned, Norman Wurzba, whose books you should read if you haven't, um, uses or reads, uh, um, I think he's a fifth, maybe seventh century theologian, Maximus the Confessor. Uh, In his reading of this guy, he says that creation is the manifestation of God's love. And so Hmm. I think to, to, I, I think you're not alone. Jesus Christ is with us and is eternally with us mm-hmm. by the right hand of God mm-hmm. advocating for us, not just personally that we get saved, but in really material ways, there is a human in the Godhead advocating for you. And the, and then as the creator and creation as a manifestation of that creator's love, um, we are not alone in creation in the sense that Jesus Christ is, is alongside us working on behalf of creation. And <clears throat> as we're doing that work, we are helping to make possible that reala- realization of God's love for ourselves and for others. Um, I just put my daughter to sleep <clears throat> and I think that that is that, I mean, I think that I'm having an experience that a lot of other folks are having, which is this concern for the next generation. You know, are they going to have a world that's inhabitable? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. But what I do know is that those two things I mentioned, but also that one of the things that I'm focused on with her is that I'd be able to give her the skills to learn and be in sympathy with the land Um, I guess I'm going on a massive tangent right now to your question, but um, that's okay. uh, I I hope that I will instill in her this, this sensibility of sympathy that I will, I Mm -hmm. don't think of the land primarily as something that I should extract things from, but that I would learn from and listen to and have the tools 
to adapt alongside the land. I mean, it's, it's the farmers, it's the people that have been on land for generations that <clears throat> can actually tell you what's going on because they can see seasons, seasons changing, um, <clears throat> like crop and growing cycles changing over the past 30, 40 years um, in ways that their generations before them at speeds, the generation before them didn't notice. But if you can give people the skills to pay attention to those things and they'll be able to adapt and um, grow and change. That, that's not really a, a long-term necessarily solution, but I think that's one of the things that I've just been thinking a lot about with my daughter. <laughs> well, that's great. And don't, yeah, don't die right. on us. Uh, okay. Well, David, thank you so much for having this little chat with me about the environment and how we can possibly have a little bit of hope. Yeah, I hope so. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for, for having me and the chance to chat a little bit and reflect on some of the stuff I've, I've been thinking about. So, so mm -hmm. thanks for being on. Hey, no problem. Yeah, well, see you Indeed. next time. Hi, you just listened to Pod Have Mercy, a podcast hosted by me, Jackson Davey, and produced by myself and Christ in St. Luke's Episcopal Church here in Norfolk, Virginia. If you like this episode and want to hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share this with your friends and leave a review. For all of us here, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.